Good evening. I'm feeling very digital with my array of gadgets down here. Um, so I hope you forgive me as I fiddle with them through the course of the evening. But it wouldn't be an event without some plain old paper as well, because really, who can beat it? Thank you all for coming this evening. My name is Catherine Favell. I'm the Director of Community Outreach here at the Library. And tonight we're exploring digital storytelling and we've been so thrilled by the response to tonight's event. It's really terrific to see you all here. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the first storytellers of this land that the library stands on. It's traditional owners, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I thank their elders past, present and future for caring for this extraordinary country that we're privileged to live on and work on every day. And I'd also like to welcome any First Nations people here with us this evening or listening to us online. Thank you all for coming. A little less than a year ago, we had an opportunity to commission a digital experience called Beauty Rich and Rare and to see how digital technology might help us to tell the stories in our collection in a slightly different way. Nearly 50,000 people have seen Beauty Rich and Rare over the summer, which, as you can imagine, delights us no end. But that experience also inspired tonight's conversation as we thought, we've played in this space, but what does it really mean? What, what can it mean to an organisation like the National Library? What can it mean to our communities as we help them to discover what we have, um, as they learn um, and as they engage with our collections? We're very lucky to have four extraordinary digital curators here with us this evening, so let me begin by introducing them to you. On my right is Anthony Bastic. Anthony is the CEO and creator of AGB Events, the creators of Beauty Rich and Rare. Anthony has conceived and produced Vivid Light Sydney and The Lights of Christmas, and most recently he was creative director for the Invictus Games opening and closing ceremonies, and his team has produced an extraordinary new work, Treasures Illuminated for the Australian Museum. Over on my left is Michaela Jade, the CEO and founder of InDigital, a company we've been hearing a lot about over the last 12 months or so. Michaela's working to develop innovative ways to translate knowledge and culture from remote and ancient communities to new audiences. And you may have heard about her work being recognised last year when she was awarded the Verve Clico New Generation Award. Beside me is Astrid Scott, a senior producer and strategist for ABC Education. Astrid has worked across the ABC as a digital content producer, specialising in emerging platforms and has developed award-winning interactives, animations, video content, virtual reality and much more. And on my left is Sam Doust, the creative director of Latchkey, specialising in digital narrative design and production. Sam's recent projects include creative works for Sydney Opera House and a major education series for the ABC and the Department of Vets Affairs, which we'll learn more about later. And up in the bio box is Adam Maples, who's going to be handling all the digital stuff for me this evening. He's definitely a part of this conversation, as are all of you. We're having a little experiment Tonight, we're going to try to use Slido for the first time. 
Some of you may have used it before and consider yourself Slido experts. For those of you who aren't, like me, all you have to do, my team tells me, is just log on to Slido and type in the event code 3566. It's all up there behind me. Type in a question. You can like someone else's question, and I'll do my best to make sure your questions are part of the conversation. And if that all falls apart, we'll resort to old tech and bring out the microphones towards the end of the evening. So, to kick things off, one of the things that I've realised is that the term digital storytelling is understood by different people in different ways. So, my question to all of you is, what does digital storytelling mean to you? Are we all on the same page or are we in different parts of the universe? Michaela, would you like to kick the conversation off? Hey, um, can you hear me? I think we've got... Okay. Adam, are we all turned on? Yes, you can hear. Okay. Um, to me, digital storytelling is weaving uh, our most ancient narrative cultures into code in a way that is represented visually for other audiences to consume. So I think for me, it's mostly um, starting with what we already have. We have at least 80,000 years of knowledge and stories to share and code is relatively new. Um, so we're trying to bring the code into the culture and the culture into the code. Yeah. Sam? Uh, I think it's obviously a, a descriptor for a very large array of techniques of storytelling. Um, but maybe what, what characterises digital storytelling more than anything else is the fact that you can synthesise the media and create a much sort of broader, potentially 360 view on a subject. So... Um, the stories of the past, for instance, can be revisited in digital narrative uh, and given a much broader context, a much more sort of uh, whole, wholeness if you do it right, I think. Mm -hmm. So um, you can bring you know, a diary from the First World War, which was really the verite of the time, the, the reportage of the time. You can bring that to life next to a completely... ...to use multiple sources, multiple techniques, multiple narratives? Absolutely. Like, yeah. that's, that's, that's the thing. It's about bringing those threads together and producing something new. But mm -hmm. it's, it's more than that because on a sort of spectrum of genre and types, you've really got all sorts of things. You've got um, special articles in the news every day. Um, the New York Times, for instance, um, or the ABC do a good job at interactive storytelling, I'd say, on a sort of um, feature-length news item. And at another end of the spectrum, you've got you know, these sort of large budgeted video games, quite frankly, mm. as a digital narrative, and then everything in between. So <coughs> it is a, when we say digital storytelling or digital narrative, it is very much a broad description of a lot of genres and types of production from small, small to large. Yeah. Astrid, is that something that resonates with you? Absolutely. Actually, both Michaela's and Sam's points resonate with me, but I think... When I um, first started working for an organisation called ACME down in Melbourne about 15 years ago, we used to run things called digital storytelling workshops. And what they were, and I think people, probably everyone here is familiar with them, it would be everyday people coming in with their own, you know, sort of uh, photographs and, you know, stories and memories and trying to construct an, a narrative out of those things and I guess the key point of that, I don't think that's exactly what digital storytelling always has to be, is that digital tools give us sort of 
access to create something new out of lots of you know, bits and pieces. So the ephemera that Sam's talking about um, from the past, it can also be you know, things that we have in our everyday lives that we want some way to connect together and we don't have the budget to hire a film crew, but we, we can use digital tools to you know, basically be our own art makers. Anthony, when I googled digital storytelling, thinking that I knew everything there was to know about it, not, um, the emphasis on community participation is really quite strong in the early literature. Mm. Your work is much more comprehensive and complex. Mm. Um, what's the role that you see for digital storytelling? How do you define mm. it? Um, I think I, I agree with the panel members, but I think digital storytelling is enables us to take complicated storylines and convey them through a medium that people uh, that has broad appeal and it has the the capacity to have um, enormous reach so I think with um, the examples that I've seen through <coughs> the Vivid Festival, for example, um, you can take a narrative of, maybe it's a children's story, and use digital equipment, and then project this story onto the facade of an uh, iconic building. Um, you're enabling uh, a strong narrative to be created and developed, and you're also there's so many different facets to to compiling or um, devising a digital story. There are so many aspects that go into it. It looks simple, but uh, so much effort and craftsmanship goes into it. Mm. But I, I think if I had to define it, it digital storytelling allow, um, has broad appeal, has the c capacity to have broad appeal, but it also has the capacity to tell complicated stories through technology to a large audience. One last thing is well, I'd say, um, there's so much to say about it in terms of definition, but it does uncouple you from linear time as well in an oh. abstract way, which is really useful. Um, Astrid and I worked on a project a few years ago, seven years ago, something like that, um, which was like a modern war of the worlds, it was an alternate reality and you had to go with that idea that it was an alternate reality that was sort of playing out inside your own reality. And back in the H.G. Wells or, um, or the radio play of H.G. Wells' story, back in that time uh, they could hijack a whole medium. Mm. But in our time that would be profoundly naive to think you could hijack mm. an, uh, a medium because the internet is so wide-ranging. So we um, we had interesting editorial choices to make about how, you know, how, do you, um, uh, how do you convey the suspension of disbelief in a digital medium uh, when you're trying to pretend that it's actually happening without sort of being uh, too conceited and therefore sort of dumped on by an you know, internet audience that doesn't want the wool pulled over their um, eyes or ears. Is, can I ask you all, is reach and the internet, are they two of the critical levers in digital storytelling or not? <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting question. Does, does it ma matter whether you are 
sharing your story with hundreds and thousands around the world or around the country, or can it be work effectively in a more intimate setting? I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the work that I do and my company does, we usually, uh, and Sam and I were just talking about this, is that we develop the story and then we take a story or a concept to um, generally a government institution. Therefore, the expectation that we are um, using public money to create a digital experience, then there's an expectation that it reaches a large audience. Yeah, I have the opposite problem. (laughs) Mostly self-funded, so Um, it doesn't matter to me whether one person has the experience of our culture or a billion people experience it. And often the work that we're doing is in a unit called Hololens now, which not many people can get their hands on. So um, having Mm. those intimate digital experiences with just one senior traditional owner who for the first time is able to understand that everybody can now see what he sees through this unit and what his ancestors could see through this unit and having that moment of realisation that they're not alone in sharing that story anymore, that's as powerful to me as a million or a billion people seeing that one piece of content that's been intimately developed with that senior TO. I think, I think it is important that, that the virtual can uh, extend the reach of a collection, though. That's important for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, um, having put the Sydney Opera House on Google Cultural Institute, anybody anywhere in the world with an internet connection can see that now. And they can see things that they wouldn't see if they went to the place, but they can also experience, um, they can experience things that they would if they did, rather than it being a threat and a replacement to the actual experience of going to a museum or a cultural center. Yeah. It's not that at all. It's sort of, it's a, it's a view of that, but it's also a sort of big, deep dive into things that you, you know, possibly we get museum fatigue from anyway if you, you know, tried to, to, to reach out to that in the physical experience. So it's this fabulous aug- augmentation. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, uh, the other thing, I don't know if, if this is the right time to talk about it, but there's a lot of work involved in digital storytelling from the audience perspective. When you sit down with a book, um, you're engaging your mind, or a podcast, which is a form of digital narrative as well, to some extent because of the medium, but you're engaging your mind, you have expectations, but Digital storytelling can really demand a lot of the audience or the user. We're going to come back to yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting side of it. But it's, it's really, I'm conscious it's really hard to actually talk about digital storytelling without seeing some digital storytelling. Uh, and tonight we've got four examples uh, to show you. We will also email you uh, links to these and some other examples um, following this event. So you've got some homework to go home with. But let's begin with looking at where this event began with Beauty Rich and Rare. Adam, would you tee up Beauty Rich and Rare for us? Beauty Rich and Rare illuminates Australia's unique flora and fauna and pays homage to Joseph Banks and his intrepid team of scientists and illustrators. Nearly 250 years later, David Attenborough said, no journey has brought back such treasures.
Following the Admiralty's instructions to search for the Great South Land, the Endeavour now began a journey which would eventually put all of New Zealand and the east coast of Australia on the map. Australia is one of the most biologically diverse countries on the planet. It's home to more than one million species of beautiful, rich and rare plants and animals, many of which are found nowhere else. Now, if you haven't seen it, it's screening till 8 o'clock tonight. It's your last chance, so you can pop up to the fourth floor after the conversation. But, Anthony, would you just give us a bit more of a background about how Beauty Rich and Rare came to be and what you were hoping to achieve? Sure. So, I was... I'm quite interested in, in history. So, I was aware of this story of Joseph Banks and that he had... was a rich, wealthy man who paid £10,000 to convince the Admiralty that they should um, have a, a ob the, observe the transit of Venus and uh, in Tahiti and then also look for the great southern land. Um, and so I knew about that, obviously I knew about that story through school. I uh, wanted to, uh, knowing that um, 2020 is commemorates the 250th anniversary of the arrival of the Endeavour and Cook's Endeavour on the east coast of Australia. What I was trying to do was to, to which, which is you know obviously a polarizing story, and it, it's um, it, it's what, what was the what's an interesting outcome from that voyage, which was the amount of plants that Joseph Banks collected. He ran that Endeavour ship like a art studio uh, with having four illustrators um, that they captured every image of the plants that he collected and then uh, made extensive notes and then took them back to England and, and um, painted them and then we're left with these beautiful images of that first voyage. So that was my kind of premise. I was then interested to see could we make a point how indigenous people use the plants and uh, for a millennia and then and what what were these plants being used as so I wanted to to convey that narrative um, so I had developed this concept and then I was talking to different institutions and uh, about the possibility of accessing their their um, information their their records that I could use and, and I approached the National Library because a lot of the content is kept within the National Library that I, that I really wanted to use to digitalize. Um, and fortunately, the National Library thought it was a, an interesting concept and we were able to, to go forth and, and develop this, the content. Um, for me and the team of of animators that, that I've been working with in my company has been an incredible journey. Um, we've learnt so much about uh, digital artistry and also how to, the tricks of unlocking 
collections and and then creating a narrative that would speak to many different age groups. So students that are coming in um, through the library so they can have uh, an interesting history lesson and people can just look at something that's actually beautiful. So yeah, it's been an interesting journey and I can't thank the National Library enough for allowing us to commission, commission us to produce this work, which we hope will be seen around the world. Fingers crossed. Mm. Mm. The Beauty Rich and Rare really tackles some very complex scientific stories. And Astrid, I was wondering in your work in ABC Education, what some of the challenges are in looking at stories about science, natural history, stories that are not, don't have a, have a lot of technical knowledge that you kind of need to impart with them. How does digital storytelling help or hinder in that process? Well, I was just thinking that as I was listening to you, I was thinking, well, we use a lot of exactly the same content, but we, we chop it up and we organise it in a way that teachers can use it in the classroom. So, the, you know, the same images, the same story is basically... It's almost broken down. I mean, I, I'm sure those of you who have been a teacher or have had kids that have gone to school, they know that, um, you know, you, you have about 10 minutes of attention time to kind of get your point across and that the content that um, a teacher will use is like, it's got to be really punchy at the start. So we, we, it's almost, we create these things called digibooks. I'm, I'm actually not a digibook manufacturer myself, but <laughs> <laughs> there is a team of people who do it in ABC Education where they'll, that they, they're basically designing a digital textbook that a teacher can either assign to a student as homework so that they can go through the content. And the, the point is that it's that, you know, that you get to experience the actual content with context. And mm. I think that's, you, you're providing the same thing, but you're providing a more artistic kind of um, located experience mm. that sort of, it overwhelms you while you have it. This is much more for studying. And when you're studying, you need, you probably need to have a little bit of, of remove at times, mm. but um, what we're really interested, I suppose, is the possibility in the future that you can come together with both, and that it's going to be less of a digital textbook and more of an immersive experience that allows you to, I, I guess, learn by doing, and I, I will yeah. talk about that a little bit later, and what, how we think VR and, and AR are definitely um, opportunities to do that sort of thing. But yeah, we're... It, Complex topics, you've got, you've got such little time. Like, we, we basically make videos that are two minutes long, you know, because that's the time that you've got to explain something to, you know, a, a teenager generally. They don't want to sit there and watch half an hour of, you know, <laughs> explanation of, of what's going on. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit different. Yeah. Mm. You've raised um, AR and VR and... Michaela, you've been doing some extraordinary work bringing the new digital technology to share very old cultural stories. Mm -hmm. um, let's have a look at your excerpt. Maybe you'd like to talk yeah, us through so it as, as it's screened. <laughs> um, yeah, so we started... Adam's going to just set it yep, up for us. He's going to start. Yeah. So my vision was that you would be able to stand at a cultural place and have the right story at the right time told by the right person for the right reason. And when I first saw augmented reality in 2012, 
um, I thought, wow, this is amazing. People could put their phone up to our cultural places and s traditional owners would have the opportunity to share our stories with you rather than the National Park Service where I worked, wh where signs are usually used to communicate that information and it's often not from the voice of our people. Um, so I saw the digital technology as a medium to be able to achieve that. Only at the time it wasn't quite ready <coughs> for my vision. <laughs> so we, we ended up persevering for 18 months to uh, trigger our first cultural site. And we finally got some support and resources to be able to build a minimum viable product, which is the app, um, through working with Kakadu traditional owners. And then eventually, um, 18 months ago, I was approached um, at a conference by Microsoft who introduced me to the HoloLens and um, we've now been working in mixed reality in HoloLens and there's a couple of different types of realities so I might just explain mm. the realities. <laughs> yeah, I'm in a totally different reality to most people. <laughs> um, so there's um, what's called virtual reality and that's the one where you put your face in it and you're having a completely independent experience and it could be a 360 degree video or it could be a completely new world that's totally animated. Um, but you're usually having that experience on your own. Um, and then there's augmented reality and that's where you simply put a digital layer into the real world. So it could be geolocated, it could be located um, using object or image or outline recognition. Um, but that's basically what we did with the mobile app. And then there's a new reality which is called mixed reality, um, which sometimes you'll see referred to as XR. And that's where the data actually interacts with the real world. So you can program um, a hologram to come into this room and because you map it with the HoloLens, it has um, instantaneous 3D mapping, you can program a hologram to sit on the chair. So the data knows where the chair is, the data knows where the walls are, the data knows where the, the roof is, and etc. So it also knows where you are. So you can have an interactive experience with what is essentially a hologram. Um, it can be a real person, or it can be um, a completely animated figure from, um, from the past. So we worked with um, senior traditional owners to explore mixed reality to see what does it look like when um, we bring back to life a 60,000-year-old uh, character called Namande, um, who was painted on the rock in Kakadu all those years ago by thousands of generations of ancestors ago. What does it look like when people can now interact um, with the Namande in the way that traditional owners have seen Namande and still see them today on the stone country, which are invisible to other people, but they, they see them. So they want to share with other people what they're seeing when they see a Namande in the stone country. So we'll just show you. Um, if you could please press play, that would be amazing. Thank you. So what we did um, was, this is a HoloLens. <laughs> And you can see it's, I'm driving it with my hands, so it's all gesture driven and it's also voice command driven if you, if you can't use your hands. Um, and this is the, the menu of the app. So you can see that there I'm choosing to look at Numanda. We did a series of three mixed reality experiences. Um, and we just placed the Numanda on the table in this instance. But last week in Kakadu, I got to place it on country, which was quite exciting. 
Um, and you can scale it, which is something that the artist Neville Namanyuk was really excited about because Namande, when you see them as a binning person, they're 11 foot tall. Mm. So we can make them 11 foot tall in the Hololens. Um, and you can see here, um, the Namande is, is speaking about a really ancient story in Gunwinku. And um, so he's now going to do a dance for you. And you can see the aspects of the Namande, like the really long fingers. Um, and you can see he's got a dilly bag around his neck and that's because if you don't do the right thing on stone country, those long fingers will come in and grab your kidneys and liver and pop them in the dilly bag for later. <laughs> so everyone says to me, oh, he's so cute. I'm like, oh no, when you understand what's being said, no, he's not cute. Um, and this is the, the Boloko. So this is um, an ecological story about when is the right time to harvest water python in the six seasons of Kakadu. So, this was us experimenting um, with how you share a, a traditional ecological knowledge story. And um, so that you can see the twin snakes there. And that this was a really special story. It was painted by a young man who's 17 called Hezekiah Lane. And um, he, he was able to work on this story with us um, just before his grandfather passed away, who was teaching him how to paint this story and how to tell the story. So. Um, and this centipede is a really interesting one. Um, so centipede jala is a story that Binning tell their children, because Binning eat a lot of um, kind of fatty foods, so they eat barramundi and a lot of meat, and there can be a lot of eye diseases that um, come when people don't wash their face and hands. So the traditional owners tell their children that if you don't wash your face and hands before you go to bite you on the face with a poison. <laughs> so we were able to like really bring that to life for kids and and so they could see the big centipede. So yeah, maybe this, we can stop talking now. And, um, <laughs> thanks, Adam. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so Michaela, is your hope, is your goal and ambition mm -hmm. that people e are exploring and experiencing these stories on country? Yeah. And is that where your primary audience, do you think, is going to be? Yeah, so our primary audience at Digital is traditional owner groups and Indigenous communities. So first and foremost, we work for community. And the reason that we do that is I'm a Cabrigal woman and I didn't understand my culture until I was 29. So we, our family had a relationship long before in the stolen generation which resulted in me not having my culture, me not having my language, me not having my songs. And so there's nothing sadder for me than for you to go to your cultural place and see the carvings of your ancestors staring at you with no understanding of the message that you're supposed to have for that place and I didn't want that for my children and I certainly don't want that for other Indigenous communities across Australia and across the world. So the reason that we, we work so hard um, with traditional owners first and foremost is that I spoke to 300 elders a long time ago at, at the World Indigenous um, Forum in Darwin and I asked them four questions. The first one was, what are you most proud of? And they all said, we're most proud of being humanity's spoken history. And the second thing I said was, what are you most afraid of? And they said, we're most afraid of being the last ones of this story which, and the language, which was boggling to me because I was so desperate to learn my own stories and language. I asked them, what, what's stopping you from translating the knowledge? And a lot of them said that it's because the kids are always in that phone. So. <laughs> I was like, oh, I went home and I was working with a group of amazing people at home and we were talking about it and I said, we were just talking about, well, why don't we put the culture in the phone? 
if that's where the kids are and that's where they want to consume information, technology and games and songs and pop culture, why can't we put the culture in the phone as well? So we, we embarked on that, which took us to the UN actually, for intellectual property issues, so yeah. Um, we've got a, a question from yeah. the audience, from Anonymous, whoever you are. Um, and Michaela, the question is, have you experienced any pushback or negative feedback from traditional owner groups as you've been yep. trying to convince them that going digital is the way to yeah, not at preserve all. their cultural stories? Not at all. I've had no one come to me and say that this is a terrible idea. I have questions. So people say, OK, if we put our language or we put our law, we put our knowledge about the land, plants, animals, what happens about intellectual property? And that is the, the only question that traditional owners usually ask me, which is a valid question. So we actually spent two years with our, our lawyer, Terry Jenke and company, before we even coded anything to work out what are the cultural protocols that Indigital will use to work with communities and what are the licensing arrangements? So we actually, instead of us owning copyright and us owning intellectual property over any of this data, it's owned by the traditional owners and traditional owner groups through an agreement and they license it to us for our use. So they're free to use it anywhere they like. They're free to stop using it if they like. And we also have um, commitments from their generations behind them about what will happen to this um, information once the person who's the sole person creating it um, passes away. And I was really worried about this at the start. And when I ended up working on country in Kakadu, um, I was working with one of the aunties and I said, we're making, you could be made into a ghost of the future when you pass away. <laughs> and to, I said, what, how do you want us to manage that? Do you want us to take it down? Because this potentially could go all around the world. And she said, no, don't take me down. I want to stay there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think people are shit changing their minds about how they would like um, their stories told into the future and often community are very excited to see now recordings of their ancestors and in Kakadu for example where Crocodile Dundee was made um, they they watch Crocodile one, di one, two and three they watch Crocodile Dundee they've all got the DVD and they watch it because all their relatives are in there <laughs> and they want to reconnect with people mm. that have passed over incredibly proud of that mm. Who knew that Crocodile yeah. Dundee was giving such a <laughs> exactly. significant gift yeah, to the, exactly. the community? Yeah. Patrick, can we do a panel on digital ghosts? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm really yeah. interested in yeah. that. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. We could do a whole series ghosts. of panels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we might need to tonight because already I'm looking at the clock. So we may go a little bit over just to warn you. Um, but you've raised some interesting questions about the role of the audience um, in using VR and AR. It's a very interactive experience. What, what are your expectations of the audiences that you're creating for? Are they viewers or are they participants? How do they shape the story or not shape the story? Are they empty vessels that we're pouring stories into? What? Oh, in almost every format of digital storytelling, the audience is a participant. Um, you, could, you could extend that through all sorts of media, of course, but um, when it comes to digital, because there's a level of complexity to a lot of it, uh, and you want them to reach into that, you are asking for work. Mm. Um, and it is more than reading a book. It's more like 
um, it's more like work. And um, I, I don't feel like I really acknowledged that for a while. But as, as the um, digital storytelling we were doing became more complex, it became very obvious that that was the case. Um, I mean, sure, you can scroll through uh, an interactive article and not feel like you're working too hard at that. Although that, that in itself can be taxing. But um, participate in an alternate reality drama uh, and you may end up doing two hours work a night <laughs> just to keep up, which is what we found um, when we did one. Um, that's a lot of work. And, uh, you know, computer games are a good, sort of good example of this because that's a, a, good, a good offset in a way because we, we don't necessarily think of them as, as sort of maybe pure play digital storytelling, but in many ways they are. And the contract is between the person consuming that material and, and spending their time with it. And a lot, if you look at a lot of the digital economic models now, they accept that idea that really the commodity is someone's time mm -hmm. because within that space of that person's time, they may be doing an awful lot of work. Uh, and there's, uh, it's almost like the census measuring um, non-paid work, for instance. There's an acknowledgement, basically, it's a similar, similar idea. There's an acknowledgement that your time more and more is of value. Uh, and when it comes to digital storytelling, you may be, you may be doing a, you know, quite a lot of leaning in. Mm. The audience, the community aspect of it is what's really exciting, I think, too. Like, I just, I was blown away. I, I don't know how many of you have got kids or grandkids that um, play Fortnite, but Fortnite's a thing. <laughs> and Fortnite, they just had a, um, a live concert, the first ever live captured DJ concert inside Fortnite, they had 10 million people participating in that concert. And at this point, they're just participating through their screens, their flat screens, you know, they can send emoticons, emojis in, and kind of like the avatar can, is that me? It's yeah, your earring. Me. Sorry. <laughs> I think it's your earring. Uh, yeah. It's my earring. <laughs> I'm going to keep my head very still. <laughs> um, but they can, they can, you can imagine the possibilities for VR in particular, I think, or well, AR as well. Like, imagine if you're in a concert with 10 million other people and, and you're there participating and it's, you know, it's th that sense of opening up community to events and opening up the audience to participate in the story in a, a real-time, live way, I think is the most exciting thing about it for me at the moment. The other small thing I'd add is that, um, it, it, especially on more complex digital projects, the onus is on the maker to make it a tiered experience so that um, if you're there just to have your hand held to some extent through the content, that's one side of it. But to, um, if you're going to sort of, if you like, deep dive into that content and really go deep, then it needs to be structured in a way that you can consume it. For instance, like the, the idea of a book with its, with its chapters is, is not a bad analogy mm -hmm. in the sense that, okay, I will, as Astrid was saying, I will cut up this media mm. into consumable amounts of time so that, uh, so that, you know, the explorative stuff can be sort of ranging, but at the same time you can get through this content in a chapterized way. All that sort of structuring is, is, on, the, is on the content maker, mm -hmm. an, important, an important aspect of, of storytelling. Anthony, one of the interesting things for me in being here every day as people were going through Beauty, Rich and Rare and popping up and seeing how it was going, was looking at audience responses, because I think people went in with the expectation that they would take a seat and just watch. Mm. But the effect of, if you've been in, you know there's five screens, you feel quite wrapped 
um, by the images and the sound and immersed in it, people actually were having to work harder than I think they thought mm. they were. They weren't going to a movie and sitting back and relaxing. They were maybe feeling a little bit seasick at moments. Yeah. Um, different things were happening to them physically. Older people were going, I've got to read every single word. <laughs> um, younger people were just sitting there and, and absorbing more. Mm. Were you thinking about the audience experience when you were creating it and how much they would have to do? Yes, we were. Um, I like the fact that people have to work when they go into a, an experience like this, that they, they, there is so much um, imagery that, and there are so, so many messages within this story that people are, are continually looking at, at different screens to see where, which one they should watch. Um, it's we're kind of making a reference point to the digital world, that there is so much information. And I wanted to ensure that that came through with our narrative, that there was so much information coming through this voyage in the plant specimens that Joseph Banks and his team were collecting, and they were thirsty for knowledge. So that's kind of how we set up the premise that you walk into the exhibition and you are actually thirsty for knowledge and we are, <clears throat> we are able to provide a lot of knowledge and I hope that some, some of the audience would then um, you know, think about some of the storyline and the information that, that they've been able to listen to and watch and learn more about it themselves. Mm -hmm. Sarah's asked, a question about audience testing and at what point do you bring the audience in to look at what you're doing, adjust what you're doing? Is that a critical part of the development process for you all? Um, yeah. How do you go about it? For me, everything's a test all the time. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are always testing with people, but I guess we, as human-centred designers, we're trying to influence from the very first idea of what we're creating, the user is building it with us. So hopefully it works for them and it's intuitive for them. And if it's not, we all constantly seek feedback from traditional owners about how they're perceiving it, how they'd like other people to perceive it. If it's starting those cultural conversations, so one thing for me with the digital content that we make is the magic actually doesn't happen in the HoloLens. It happens when someone takes it off and they start having that conversation. And one beautiful moment for me was when Neville, the artist for Numandé, um, went in the HoloLens for the first time and his young daughter, Yanmalu, was three years old. And she's like, Daddy, Daddy, what are you, what are you watching? And he showed her in the HoloLens and then they took the HoloLens off and put it on the coffee table and they sat there for 20 minutes. <laughs> doing cultural exchange about Numandé and the story of Numandé. So he was passing that on to the next generation because they had that learning moment in the HoloLens. So, yeah. Oh, I, um, when I was at the ABC, we would frequently uh, test things in the abstract sense right at the start, like in, on, in, on paper, in wireframes. And, mm -hmm. you know, that can be a very abstract process and discipline. And you, you have to be careful about what you draw from that necessarily, but it's also very useful. Um, and then as you go through, you, 
you'd, you'd drag colleagues and you'd drag members of the public and say, what do you think of this? What, what's this? You know, when we were developing Ivy, we had to do that constantly, obviously, because that was quite a brand new interface for people. Um, but I would also say the flip side of that, and as you were saying, Michaela, there are lots of different flip sides to user testing. And one is just watching the digital trends emerge and mm. the practicality. So this huge, I'm a huge fan of that big common sense that runs through aspects of life. And digital has this huge wave of common sense behind it, which experts can sort of get a bit snooty about <laughs> sometimes, but actually there's a lot of truth in that. Um, just, just thinking about Netflix and the Bandersnatch uh, film, I don't know if any of you tried that on Netflix, which is essentially a branching narrative, it's a digital narrative that um, is Netflix made a digital platform, their first foray into interactive narrative. Um, it's basically the, uh, and not trying to hide it, the, the branching narrative of those wonderful adventure books that you might have read as a kid. Um, but it works quite well. And having taken a simple first step was a very sensible thing to do. And you can bet that was based on you know, user testing and not, not, not being overly challenging. Mm -hmm. But whereas um, we worked out through user testing that branching narrative is very hard to achieve just with audio when we're trying to build um, you know, choose your own adventure prototypes and R&D at the ABC uh, using Alexa and Google Home and, and whatnot, you know, you just can't remember that much. So you can't remember all your choices. By yeah. the time you've got to choice number three, you're like, oh, what was number one again? And so it's sort of, you know, by trying that stuff and it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be a very specific waterfall style. We're going to test with 10 people now and then we're going to go away and reiterate. It can be much more iterative and um, I guess, uh, ongoing than that, you know, you should always be ready to change your product, I think. Mm -hmm. Always be ready to change mm -hmm. something that people are going to use if enough people come back to you and say, well, that's no good. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm trying not to move my head. <laughs> You're doing well. Let's look at our third example tonight, Adam, which is um, part of a, a, a tiny part of a very big project that Sam's been involved in called Days in Conflict. And it'll be on our screen any minute. Gotta love technology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, maybe while Adam's fiddling. Oh no, here we go, we're good. By 1917, more than 500 years old, and no stranger to occupation and siege, the city of Ypres lay in ruins, veiled in smoke and dust. Where once Ypres had rivaled Paris as a flourishing city of textiles, it was now the foremost jumping off point before the front lines of battle in the British sector and the most heavily bombarded target on the Western Front. Wipers, as the British soldiers delighted in mispronouncing its name, was also the last Belgian city before the coast, a devastated but vital symbol of why Britain had entered the Great War, to liberate Belgium from the German army. Through these ruins, past countless convoys of materiel, 
and processions of soldiers on their way to the front lines of the war in the Ypres salient. Passing the shattered cloth hall onto what had been the prosperous city's market, the Grand Place, they snaked on between the stone lions of the Menin Gate, down the Menin Road, into the desolation of the Flanders fields and the battles of Third Ypres. Beneath the fractured and ruined streets and dug into the city's ramparts existed stockpiles of munition, aid stations, billets and garrisons, well sheltered from the constant German bombardment. Soldiers who paused here on their journeys found solace in the gallows humour of the trench newspaper, the Wipers Times. One poem perfectly expressed the ironic tone the paper struck, which the soldiers found so endearing. Titled, With the Usual Apologies, the poem read, If you can crawl through wire and crump holes, reeking with feet of liquid mud, and keep your head turned always to the place you are seeking, through dread of crying, you will laugh instead. If you can fight a week in hell's own image, and at the end just throw you down and grin, you'll be a soldier one day then, my son. Sam, looking at that, I'm taken straight to the war memorial and those wonderful old dioramas that you used to pour over as a kid. Tell us a little bit about Days in Conflict and what your inspiration was for creating it. Um, well, uh, we we had made a. Sorry, can you hear me? Yep. We had made a documentary in 2009 about Gallipoli, uh, and the time at the time we were experimenting with um, the idea of spatial storytelling and th the th the th some 3D plugins were emerging that were inside the sort of browser that we were interested in exploring. So mm. we sort of took two ideas. Um, a producer at the ABC called Nina. Damaraja had come back from her honeymoon, I think, um, on Gallipoli. And she was like, you can't understand this story until you, you go to Gallipoli and you see the terrain, the geography is everything. And we were like, yeah, okay, that sounds cool. And th here's all this 3D stuff. Um, Flash, which was an old um, software environment we used to use, had just sort of enabled a Z-axis and basically allowed a 3D environment. So we thought, well, we'll bring these two things together and we'll tell a story. Um, which got just went off on a roller coaster of interesting ideas and all the sort of passions of multimedia that we all had. Astrid's first gig at the ABC, I think that's that was, <laughs> and um, and we 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 published it. It was it was quite successful. It got an AFI for Screen Innovation, I think, and it it got some attention. So um, with the centenary coming round, I did suggest that maybe we should do a multi-touch version of that for tablets because tablets were at that time were in schools and it seemed like an excellent learning environment for it. Uh, and that elaborated into, a, into a, um, a series of apps, of six apps, which are all freely available on iOS and Android tablets um, in the app stores. Um, some of them are quite big because they don't rely on the internet at all. They're all, once it's on your machine, it's on your machine. You have access to all the content. So the video we just watched is really an appendix to one of the apps. It's, uh, it's a bit of color that has recreated Ypres, literally, as, a, as, as you can see, as a 3D diorama of what it would have looked like in 1917 when uh, Frank Hurley uh, and the Australian troops were pushing out into um, the Flanders fields and the third Ypres offensive. Um, but uh, bottom left here in the screen, you can see the sort of dioramas extended. 
and maybe the, the core the core of it is actual sort of this really interesting idea of spatial storytelling where you you can visit the map and you can see where and when things happened uh, and you can either visit it by being told the story by a narrator via chapters as we were alluding to before or you can explore it yourself uh, and it's it's a complex experience but it's an experience that's tiered so that depending on your level of interest you can really go from um, a beginner and get an excellent idea by being told stories and, and exploring what you want to get a very deep idea and a very deep understanding. Um, and uh, I, one other thing I'd just say about it is that it was an opportunity to revisit the sort of the history of these places. So I worked with academics from the War Memorial from Flinders that we were dealing with to really pinpoint where things happened, like really say, okay, this is where this happened. Uh, and that meant multiple sources. That meant the sources of various academics and historians, but it also meant the, the war diaries and, of course, the war reports of the battalions that were in the fields. And by doing that, you can really put pins in a map and then put a, put a camera on that and fly around and tell a story. And you really do begin to understand the flow of a battle and the flow of anxiety and the sort of difficulty of the human condition in those situations. Whereas that doesn't really come across um, in a book necessarily. It can be a big jump uh, to imagine what that's like. But um, it's one of the powers of digital storytelling is you can begin to move into an experience. Mm -hmm. Sean's asked a question about whether you see digital storytelling as a new form of narrative or a way to enhance existing narrative approaches. What it's do you think? It's definitely both. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what we've done with Beauty, Rich and Rare, we've taken the collection, part of the collection here, so the story, and telling, just conveying it in a, a different way. So, yeah, I think I think that's true. I think every emerging platform offers new opportunities to tell narrative, which are they're always different. So every single time something comes off, and you're like, oh wow, what can you do with? It's, with it's like a whole new tray yeah. of the tool set, you know, yeah. storytelling. Yeah. It's yeah. like, wow, oh my goodness, there's all these new tools. Mm -hmm. And you want to play with them and, and mess them up. And the thing is, that tool set is sort of, things are sort of spontaneously appearing yes. right in front of you. It's like, we've gone from AR and VR over the last couple of years. It's the uptake on that stuff's incredible. Uh, it's very fast. I remember when um, I was working with Sam and Unity came out, he caught up and was like, Stop everything! <laughs> We're doing it differently! <laughs> I was going to ask how much of your work is about being digital experimenters and, and seeing the new tools as they pop up and just trying to see what happens when you apply them yeah. to different stories in different contexts. How important is that playfulness and experimentation in your work? Yeah, it's hugely important, um, I think. but. It's a double-edged sword too because when cutting-edge technology comes out, it's incredibly expensive. Mm. Mm. So the unit that um, I'm working in at the moment is $8,000. So that's not very accessible to a lot of people. But I know I'm working in it now because I know in a couple of years it's going to come down and be available to people um, as much, you know, who knows how much it'll be, but it'll be very affordable, I think. So uh, it doesn't allow you to play a lot in that very immersive cutting edge tech because it's very expensive to do. But as the other way that we look at the world is, I don't know if you guys have seen the bush mechanics? Yeah, we're kind of like the bush mechanics but with the digital environment. <laughs> so if there's a way to hack things together, we'll generally try and do that before we spend the big money on putting something in, um, in an immersive technology like HoloLens. 
So we might go through a few iterations using all the, like I just discovered Meshroom the other day, which is amazing, you know, it's an amazing thing for photogrammetry, it's free. So there's a lot of open source stuff that's coming online now and it's just about getting into things like GitHub and looking at all the open source um, products that are available and seeing if I just put that together with that, would that give me the outcome that I'm looking for and if we can get something that's visual in front of people to say this is what we're doing, because like, I couldn't get I couldn't get any support for my app for five years because it was all in here and it wasn't in people's hands. And as soon as I was able to put something in someone's hands and show them what AR was, they're like, ah, oh, of course, that's amazing, let's do it. So trying to get and trying to hack together things using a minimum viable product approach to life, I found, has been a lot easier. Michaela's brought a HoloLens with her, so you might be able to have a little HoloLens experience at the end of the conversation. Um, but we have talked quite a bit about the role that digital storytelling can play within um, the classroom and as a tool for education. So let's have a little look at something that Astrid and ABC Education have been working on. Um, it's called Mini Beast Heroes. And we're going to go behind the scenes on this one and see um, how some of see some of the digital tools that have been used to create Mini Beast Heroes. I'm Carl Smith and I'm a science journalist at the ABC. Check this out. Oh, ooh, sticky toxic goo. So the reason I've been shrunk down to size for this series, Mini Beast Heroes, is so that for ABC Education, we can introduce kids to these insects up close and personal. But also we want kids to learn a little bit more about the insect kingdom and exactly why they're so important for our life and for the life of all creatures on the planet. Deacon Motion Lab is a commercial grade motion capture facility and we've been developing methods for creating real-time virtual production. We're really interested to see how we can make animation in a different way. The European honeybee. Isn't she beautiful? <laughs> As you can see, I'm wearing a pretty interesting motion capture suit. And these little baubles all over me are picking up my movements. I would normally also be wearing a headpiece uh, for recording here at the moment. Do it's capture the movement of people. We have adapted that by adding real-time facial capture, so capturing the movement and the emotion of people's faces. We've taken that one step further by also being able to capture props and show real-time visualisation using game engine technology. Those aren't funny eyebrows. They're antennae. And they're covered in thousands of tiny little sensors that help her touch, taste, and smell. Hey, hey, stop. Stop it. It's just me. That tickles. Real-time visualisation is being able to allow a director or a storyteller to see the CG characters, the computer-generated cartoon characters that they're working with, Instead of seeing a performer or an actor wearing a motion capture suit which is covered in dots in a black space, they're seeing the entire CG world around them but also the actual CG character that they're driving. The stupidest thing I've done so far is probably riding a giant mat. Uh, imagine like you're riding a horse except it's just a mat on its side and I'm meant to be riding an ant. Meet the meat ant. Or if you speak Latin, the purple rainbow ant. We can see enormous potential in the way that this animation pipeline allows directors, producers, almost anyone 
who um, has some experience in, in thinking about the moving image to step in and create animation dynamically and almost instantly see the results of what it is that they're doing. I've shot mocap before and I worked with mocap before and I've done countless animated shows but this is like a mocap shoot and an animated show all fitted together so I've never done anything like that before. It is a different experience because you're working with an actor live for performance and you've got all these other things that you've got to think about. We are combining real-time facial motion capture, so we're capturing that on one computer. We are capturing the body motion capture. We are also playing back in real time the animated insect characters. We have full 360 degree CG virtual worlds, so which our performer can see. At the same time, we're also capturing the movement of our virtual camera, which has full lensing capabilities and all the real world camera movements that a real camera can do. We're also really interested in the potential to produce immersive content for technologies like virtual reality and augmented reality. These are all going to be new technologies that storytellers will be looking at using. It's an R&D project, so no one's really done this kind of thing before. All these bits have got to fit together, and I think it's been really amazing how it has all fitted together. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings meets insects, mm. isn't it? <laughs> um, so it's, you mentioned there that it's an R&D project. Correct. What's the outcome that you're ex playing with and hoping to achieve? Okay, so when I was working for ABC R&D, um, we were very interested in looking at the motion capture pipeline that the university had developed, and we couldn't really get anyone to pay for it for the longest <laughs> time um, until ABC Education said, well, look, we, we, we're really interested. We can see, obviously, there's a market for animated explainers. Anything that um, gives us the opportunity to make things more cheaply, which is what we were quite interested in, to be honest, um, is something that we, we're happy to be um, involved with. However, we would like you to use insects, and that posed a bit of a problem because you can't motion capture an insect unless you used a very, <laughs> very small series of motion capture suits. So we had to um, meld a few different um, experiments together at the same time, but our outcome was actually, uh, and it's quite an interesting one for the ABC because we wanted to look at, well, we've got this environment that you can make VR and you can make AR and you can make immersive things in, but you can also use the same environment to generate plain garden variety animated content. And so we got six animated explainers for television out of it, which is what, you know, that was kind of the bottom line. Well, we need that and it can't cost more than a normal animation, but anything mm -hmm. else you can do in the space is, is great R&D. And we are very interested in you know, how you will use virtual environments for education in the future. And it's, it's not a, a now thing necessarily, but it's gonna, be a, it's gonna be an everyday thing before we know it. And so we need to, as the ABC, we wanted to get ahead of that and, and kind of, well, how do you do it? How do you even think about it? Um, and so tools like that, uh, Lab, um, you know, we, we made a room scale virtual reality experience, which is, um, a little bit more complicated, but we could generate a 360 video. Um, Amy, my colleague, directed it in, in literally half an hour um, with all the assets in place, and then we could export a 360 video just like that. So, And the, there is the a little 360 video online that you can play yeah. with on your phone too. Yeah, on YouTube. So, um, yeah, so it was, uh, it was all a big experiment, but the bottom line is we still need content that's kind of work in classrooms, and 
that's what we, we built. That's for uh, little kids to learn about the value of ecosystems. I'm old enough to remember when CD-ROMs were really <laughs> great new technology and so this question that's come through resonates quite a lot with me. The technology moves so fast, mm. um, you know, we all thought five and a quarter inch floppy disks would last forever and now there's no way you can play them. How do you balance that in the work that you do as digital storytellers? Is longevity something that you're hoping for or is it we use today's technology and then we move on to the next thing and whether people can access the older stuff in the future is not perhaps quite so important. I'm going for 2170. <laughs> I, want our I want our content to be um, used by my seventh generation descendant. My seventh generation descendant was the one that was taken from the first of the five children of the stolen generation. I would give anything to have a digital asset of her journey through that. So I'm making content now to make sure that we're being able to watch in 2170 because it's really personal for me. Like um, Researchers came to my community in the 80s and said, put it all on VHS because it'll be there for the future generations. And I can't watch it. So there's a whole, a whole heap of stuff that we've lost because people had so much faith in digital technology that they almost devolved the responsibility of transferring it the old way um, by putting it on VHS. So I think I'm working in blockchain and artificial intelligence now and looking at where where is data going and trying to um, educate our community on what we call digital custodians. So we've got law people, we've got language people, we've got medicine people. I think we need digital people. So we're trying to build um, a whole community across Australia that is equipped to understand how do you translate something from the cloud to whatever's next. I, I think if you if you place the um, sort of digital revolution around about emergent around about the 70s, then we've gone through the initial cycles of rapid change. But um, just only now, I think, are there some basic language and frameworks that are emerging as extensible and uh, longer lasting. A lot of that's on the cloud, as you say. A lot of that is formats that can exist <coughs> on the internet, which obviously the internet is in various forms very much here to stay, just like Twitter is a is here to stay. There's no obvious um, you know, revenue model around it apart from advertising seemingly. It's a difficult it's a difficult um, medium for the for the people who own it necessarily to sort of compete with others. But it seems at the same time like a pure drop of internet communication. So uh, I think languages open source and sort of software software on the back end that's just becoming something that's durable and longer lasting. But at the same time, exactly as you say, like it just conjures this idea of the stuff we do now and the stuff that's been done recently, how is that archived? Mm. And what will that look like to us in 20 years time? Will it mm. be the so-called ephemeral material of a paper diary? Of course it will. It'll be a ludicrously anachronistic looking object, probably, because um, you know, you'll have a little dot behind your ear and you'll do most of the stuff through your wristwatch and uh, there'll be telekinetic interfaces and gesture and a UI, a natural user interface, if you like, that takes away the graphic user interface's power over us at the moment. We spend a lot of time in front of a screen, the GUI, but um, we assume that natural language processing and computers will allow us just to talk, that we'll be able to cast things into space with holographic imagery, that these sort of, these things will make what we do now look 
look absurd to some extent, or maybe, maybe charming. <laughs> We've zoomed off into the future there, and I'm <laughs> conscious that you've all stayed with us beyond seven o'clock. But we have one fabulous question to end, I think, on this evening. It's a bit of a challenge for all of you. If you had to sum up your digital storytelling in just one word, what would that be? Narrative. Astrid? Accessible. Mm -hmm. uh, empathetic. Real. Fantastic. Thank you all for joining us this evening. Thank you for being Thank part you. of the conversation too. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can do so in the foyer. If you'd like to see Beauty Rich and Rare, pop up to the fourth floor. And thank you all for coming. And please thank Anthony, Astrid, Sam and Michaela. Thank you.